You are listening to How Bass Music Shaped British Society, a podcast series exploring the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised music, from sound, business and culture to people, preservation and society. My name is Dennis Bovell. I was born in May 1953 in a place called St. Peter in the island of Barbados. I relocated, being a Brit- having been born a British citizen, to the UK in 1965, where my parents had um, relocated some years earlier. My father to work on with London Transport and my mother um, and the NHS. Before I came to the UK, I was the grandson of a Seventh-day Seventh Adventist minister. And so my grandparents, my mother's parents, that I lived with while her and my dad were away in the UK, were very religious to a point where the only music allowed in the house was religious music. And at that time, my uncles had this quartet where they sang religious songs, and, and it, was, it was kind of like doo-wop. And they were the first of their kind in the 50s. And so they were very famous. And ironically, they were called the Walker Brothers uh, because my great-grandfather was a man called Harry Walker. And he was a very famous man in the neighborhood. Uh, my grandmother often boasted that her dad was the first man in the neighborhood to have a horse and cart, you know, a dray. <laughs> so I suppose that was quite all right in them times. So in the house, we weren't allowed to um, listen to calypsos. But our next door neighbor, who happened to be a cousin of my grandmother, he was totally the opposite, you know, and he would play on a Friday night. He would blast out Ray Charles, The Mighty Sparrow, Benny King, Sam Cooke, you know, all the American R&B. So I kind of grew up listening to that through the, the window. And then at home, just religious music. Then. One of my mum's brothers, who went to, he'd been educated in Trinidad, he brought home some music from the Drifters, Sand in My Shoes, Under the Boardwalk. And we'd have to hide those records and play them when the old people weren't at home. Then another couple of my mother's brothers had gone to Jamaica. And when they came home, they would bring the Scatolites and, you know, also there was two uncles of mine studying in Jamaica, one studying in Trinidad, and they would, when they came home for the, like, you know, the summer thing, there'd be Trinidadian music and Jamaican music in the house to be played when the old folks weren't listening, of course. And so <clears throat> I, I got a good taste of The Mighty Sparrow and of Byron Lee and the Dragonaires, you know, and all the stuff that was going on in Jamaica. So when you arrived in the, in the UK, describe the environment that you get to. What does it look like to you coming from Barbados? The house obviously was a lot smaller 
than I imagined. I thought, my parents are living in London, they must have a massive house. You, know, you get there and it's like two up, two down, you know? And, um, and you could only see out of the front and the back. You couldn't see out of the side. So, but I got used to it. Um, just, you know, trying to hear my dad all the time, keep the noise down, the neighbours heard, <laughs> you know. So you went to secondary school then. What was that like? What did it feel like? Music? Well, the school boasted a full orchestra. So um, there were kids, you know, trumpets, woodwind, violins, you know, the whole thing. And uh, in fact, this insignia is uh, um, a mutilation of my old school badge, where the green was white and uh, in the middle, there were no lions there. I, I put the lions there and had a friend um, design this. From, and it's called old school, as you can see. <laughs> um, what kind of music were you interested in making at that point? Were you, uh, and, and who did you make it with? Well, before I'd come to London, I'd become a fan of the Beatles and the uh, Rolling Stones, because that was the sort of new music that was being blasted out all over the world. And when I arrived in London, I met three other boys who had already a band and were looking for a fourth member. I auditioned and they took me in. And the group was called Roadworks Ahead. And we played covers. We did, um, in fact, one of our most famous tunes that we played that everybody kind of raved onto was um, the 1910 Fruit Gun Company's um, Simon Says. You know, put your hand in the air, simple Simon says, all that, right? And we played that, and then we, we played also, like, The Temptations and kind of Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett kind of thing. Then we, we moved on to start to play kind of things that Eric Clapton were doing, you know, with Cream and that and Jimi Hendrix and all that. And um, I remember being saluted because... I managed to learn the guitar solo in Hey Joe. After a lot of practice? Mate, <laughs> after slowing the record down, you know, playing a 45 at 33, learning it at 33, then having to transpose it as the key went up again as it went faster. But it put me in good stead, and that's how I used to learn quite a lot of records. I mean, Bill Dodgett, Honky Tonk, I learned it that way. What's, that, what's happening throughout in the, what are we talking about, late 60s now, early 70s? What's then, happening in the streets? What's happening with the music? In the streets, there's a new sound. And uh, it's called reggae. The pioneers have come to London. Toots and the Maytals have come to London. This is the, it's not Scar anymore. It's not Rocksteady anymore. It's reggae now and it's entering into the British charts. It's making its mark in the UK. Jamaican artists are coming over, Jimmy Cliff, are coming over and making London their base, you know? Uh, I think I remember Jimmy Cliff speaking about the night when he met Jimi Hendrix, you know? And, he, and then heard him play and was like, wow, that guy's eating the guitar, you know? And then there was that, there was this club called the Ram Jam in Brixton, which was directly opposite the police station. 
And then you would get in there um, John Mel's Blues Breakers one night, then the next night you get Otis Redding. Then the night after that you get Jimi Hendrix, you know, and then the night after that you Eric Clapton. Uh, you know, there was a, a mixture of, you know, um, Georgie Fame, people like that would, would be in, in this club. So already um, the, the genres were blending into each other and the musicians, like there were a lot of Jamaican musicians in Georgie Fame's band. So tell me about the way in which you started to become, well, how, I mean, you had your own sound system. You want to hmm. tell, us, tell us about your own sound system. Well, once I left school, I met up with an old friend who was forming a sound system, who was you know, getting together a sound system. And I had a reputation for making dub plates because I'd made some dub plates for sound systems, kind of just a one-off to kind of make it different to the ordinary. And he'd heard that I'd been doing that and he wanted to hear them to see if, you know, he wanted to actually get any of them to play on his sound system. And he came around the house and as I was playing them, he just wanted them all. So I was like, well, have you got a DJ? He's going, no, well, we're getting one. And I'm going, well, that'll be me then, you know, if you're having all my music, I'll, I'll put the music in there and then I'll come in and be the DJ. And it was done. And, and then we started this sound system called Sufferers. I'm going to interrupt you and just ask you, can you just tell us what is a dub plate? What do you mean by that? How do you make it and what is it? A dub plate is what's known in the business as an acetate. Now, an acetate is a, a, a piece of aluminium with coated in wax that you're then able to um, carve or grab the music in, you know, into the, the groove by using a, um, a cutter, a cutting machine where you transfer the sound by, by way of um, a cutting head. You transfer the sound from your tape into plastic or into wax, you know, and um, they, they're done one at a time. They're, they're quite different to the, the multi-pressing of records that are completely plastic. These are a piece of aluminium coated with um, the wax stuff, you know, and, and uh, reggae people have termed it a dub plate. In order to have a good dub plate, it would have to be something that stood out, something that caught the, the audience's attention. And it was usually if you got a song that had been a vocal song and then made a trombone version of it, or then made a percussion version of it, where um, you'd have like a chant of, you know, some Rasta drums on, on the rhythm track, and occasionally take out the rhythm instruments, just leaving the drums and the bass, and, and you know, stopping the guitar tracks, the piano tracks, the voice uh, not there or further down the road in some, reverberated room as though, you know, he was in, 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 in Grand Canyon or something, and then throw a bit of echo on it, so, so it just went, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, generally, just have fun from the engineer's point of view. So tell me about sufferers. What does it mean to have a sound system? What does a sound system do? Well, our sound system was called Sufferers Hi-Fi, and because we were the sound system of the sufferers, quite often we'd play for nothing you know, just to, to bring a bit of enjoyment, you know, maybe have a few cans of beer or something, but just to kind of, 
show off what our records were, really. And until we actually showed off so much that we got booked in a place called the Four Aces to play with a sound called Count Shelley. Now, Count Shelley was one of the big heavyweights, the heavy four of the, of the day. There was Sir Coxon, there was Duke Reed, Count Shelley, and Neville the Enchanter. Those were the four top sounds in London in the 60s, beginning of the 70s. And um, Sufferer's Sound got called to play with Count Shelley in, in East London, you know, uh, completely out of bounds. So we built an amplifier that was going to yield a thousand watts. And in those days, people were, you know, up to 300, 500, 600 watts, perhaps. So we thought we'd go there with a thousand watts. And we built uh, um, a cabinet of speakers that had eight 18-inch speakers inside. So it was a monstrous thing. In fact, to get it into the building, we had to take the front door off. And the club manager was not happy about us taking the door off to get this speaker in. And then we took it in and put it directly opposite where Count Shelley was playing. So if no one else heard us, he would have heard us and fared how heavy we were. And um, I think we might have caused his amplifier to malfunction with all that noise and all that vibration, because it was all valves at the time. And so his amplifier malfunctioned and he said, all right, Zafra, you can play for the rest of the night. So it was deemed as though we'd shut him down. You know? Is there a moment when both sounds are playing at the same time or are you taking turns? Well, there playing? can be moments when both sounds are playing at the same time. If one sound is heavier than the other and is particularly um, in a bullish mood, then if the other song is sound is playing something that you would determine as rubbish, then you might just put your one on and, and make it, and you know, what, what we term cover him, you know, with sound. Or while he's playing, just scratch my needles and go, <laughs> or, you know, make a, a, you know, a horrible noise. How, who decides who wins a sound clash? I mean, if someone's amped, melts down that's they've it. lost but, but who decides other than that how, the audience how, how do they tell you the audience by their appreciation the amount of noise they make and how long they make that noise for it's obvious who the winner is
me about your involvement uh, in the, the film Babylon. I know you appear in it at some point, don't you? No. I, I didn't appear in... I don't think I did, no. Are you not in the, in the sound? Someone told me you were in the, in, the, in the scene, in the sound system. Don't you come out? No, 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 no. Talk to the, is that not you? Okay. No, no, that wasn't no. me. Okay, that, okay. that was... A, that was um, um, it was either King Sounds or Michael Campbell. Okay. One of and those you two. you write the soundtrack? Yes, I had a hand in the soundtrack. Um, I was approached by a man called Franco Rosso, who said that he was, you know, going to um, do this film. And he'd asked Linton Gressy Johnson to do the music, and Linton said to him, no, do you want Dennis? And so he asked me, because we'd just been working on a film with Linton um, called Dread Beaten Blood. And he then gave me the script. I read it, and then when they started shooting, um, he would come to the studio and give me the rushes so I could see the day's filming and then construct music to what I'd seen on film. You know, might have been a particular way someone walked. And I decided to construct pieces of music to go with each character. So whenever that character was on the screen, you could hear traces of that song there, you know. Um, in that film, there is a scene, the sort of climax of the scene is a sound system which is raided by the police. There's a moment of, so that implicitly it's making an argument about, you know, the tensions. And was that an accurate portrayal? Was there, was there a problem between the police and sound Oh yeah, I mean, nearly every time a sound system would play somewhere, the police would be called because neighbours would probably go, it's too loud, you know. You know. And um, the police have actually been guilty of going into parties and smashing up people's sound systems with their batons. Um, in my case, I was in a, a sound clash with two other sound systems and Lee Scratch Perry had just come to London that day and he brought some dub plates. Bunny Lee was also in London and he'd had a selection of dub plates. Now these two were in deep competition in Jamaica about who was the best producer, who'd had the most hits, you know, like that, right? So this was actually a reenacting of what the Jamaican dancehall might have been with those two producers, one behind one's hand and one behind the other. The other the third sound system was the resident sound of the club. So they weren't, they were there because they were there with the resident. But the, the actual clash was between me and another sound system called Lord Coos. Now, Lord Coos was like Northwest champion. And there's me, the Southwest champion, right? clashing with him, and he was a friend of Bunny Lee. Because at that same time, Johnny Clark was making his debut in London with um, his song, Move Out of Babylon, right? And um, Matumbi, my band, was Johnny Clark's backing band. So I had access to the dub plates that Bunny Lee had made. So did Lord Coos. So we were kind of scotching who was going to play what first 
and who's going to get shown up by going, oh, I've got that as well. You know, because the thing would be to put a record on and go, this is exclusive, and go, the other sound and go, no, it's not, I've got one of them, and then play it to the ridicule of the first sound that played it. But that day, Lee Scratch Perry had come to London and uh, another friend, Larry Lawrence, had gone to meet him at the airport and um, brought him into our camp. Now, we knew that we would not be the only players of those dub plates because come the morning, he would sell them to whoever came to buy, right? But for that night, for us to be the first sound system to play one of his dub plates, and you play it at the right time, you get the right reaction from the crowd, and you throttle the other sound. I found out later the police had arrested someone in the audience or were taking someone they'd arrested. At that time, either the person's friends or members of the audience or whatever decided to grab the prisoner away from the police. Well, a fracas ensued, and um, the police came back to the club about 400 strong and beat up everyone in the club. I'm telling you, girls, men, they were dogs, everything. They, I mean, they gave more than they got. Then, the next day, I'm in uh, Ladbroke Grove, and a friend of mine goes, mate, did you get arrested last night? And I'm going, no, I'm going, mate, the police had it all in the station. They want to know who Suffer's DJ was. Okay, well, that's me. What they want to know again? That was the question. Who is Suffer's DJ? So I went to the police station and said, I'm Suffer's DJ. I heard that you've been making, you know, inquiries. In, you want to see me? And he went, yeah, come inside. And then they were hell-bent on saying that someone had used inflammatory remarks to G up the audience against the police. Well, I hadn't heard that, and it was completely untrue. Then two policemen came in the room and said that, yeah, that's him, that they had seen me on a stage with a microphone saying to a crowd of black people, get the boys in blue. I mean, that's Cockney talk, right? Even though I can speak like that, I certainly wouldn't be speaking like that in a dance hall full of black kids, right? Um, so they attributed a load of um, English slang terms to what I had said and charged me with causing an affray. Perjured themselves in court, put their hands on the Holy Bible and lied. At the end of the first, I had two trials about this, at the end of the first trial, instead of believing in a man is innocent until he's been found guilty, and I hadn't been found guilty, they moved the goalposts. Said, right, we're going to retry you, because 12 people had been charged with this so-called affray, and nine of the people had been acquitted by the end of the first jury, by the end of the first trial, just to show you what you know, 
What a nonsense it was. What happened was, I mean, I suppose people had fought the police, but the police came back and gave better than they got, right? And then, to justify having done that, they arrested 42 people. The ones who had been less beaten up were then charged with something, so that at least if they had broken ribs or something, they didn't have a bruise on the face, so, you know, they did, they'd look like they'd caused damage instead of they had been damaged. So, faced with that, then nine people had been acquitted, and I had, I had suffered a hung jury. So, the judge said, well, we're going to have a retrial. Retrial, three months. So I spent six months in one trial, three months in another trial. At the end of that trial, I got found guilty on a majority verdict, not the whole jury, but more than half of the jury. And I think they just wanted to go home. It was like, we don't care, he's guilty. Do you know what I mean? And I was sentenced to three years. And that had been the first time I'd ever seen inside of a police station or, I'd, you know, I'd been um, charged or been in any sort of bother with them. And I got sentenced to three years. Well, I was glad that I didn't have to go to court the next morning because you, you went to court from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. There was no chance to sign on or to go and work anywhere. Um, and you had to be at court every day or you'd lose your bail. Right, so what I would do is in the night time, I'd be in the studio making a few dub plates to sell to sound systems to try and make some money to keep me afloat, you know. And um, at the end of the whole thing, I appealed, but they wouldn't give me bail on appeal, so I had to start my sentence. So six months in, a guy comes in my cell one night and goes, you know... Um, and he calls a police officer's name. And I go, yeah, what about him? He goes, well, I've just been nicked with him. Uh, oh, yeah? Okay. Then on the Friday, my appeal's heard. And the same police officer that I'm going, he's a liar, has been caught doing something else, which throws his evidence into question. And then on the Monday, they proclaimed me an innocent man and overturned my sentence and overturned my conviction and set me free. It's an incredible story. Did it, did it change your mind or did it make you feel... How did it make you feel about it? Well, it made me distrust policemen because I, I hadn't in my wildest dream ever thought that, you know, another human being could go to the lengths of lying to put another person, innocent person, I might add, in jail. You know, uh, because what had happened was they'd spent a lot of money on the trial, on the police officers that they had to, to attend. They, a lot of money was spent. Someone had to pay. And the uh, appeal judges thought that it was the jury's, that the jury's fault why I was found guilty because the judges summing up had actually directed them to find me not guilty. But they'd gone against the judges summing up. And um, I think it was eight or nine of them that said I was guilty. So then the judge went, well, that's more than half. We'll take that. And... Um, 
locked me up. Yes. How did you negotiate that? Well, being, being that Jackie Elpil wasn't Jamaican, and neither was Lynn Tate, um, a guitar player who kind of ruled the roost with the, um, with the, the Rocksteady era, um, being that uh, Byron Lee, you're of Chinese descent, I didn't see that you had to be a Jamaican in order to understand and play reggae. I think all you had to do was to like it enough to want to do it and learn how it was done. I mean, no nation has a monopoly in anything apart from their language. And um, although reggae is a language of sorts, um, you can learn it. Um, I think it became interesting when 
people thought it thought of it as a myth could only be played by Jamaicans in Jamaica. So we set out to destroy that, to say, look, the tape recorders they're using are not Jamaican. The microphones are not Jamaican. The drums are not Jamaican. The guitars are not Jamaican. Neither are the keyboards, right? There's just Jamaican people playing it. But hello, anyone can learn to play a keyboard. Anyone can learn to play drums. Anyone, I mean, if uh, the Americans had a monopoly on jazz, Ronnie Scott would never have made it. One of the ways you went about proving that was basically developing your own version, your sort of native British version of, yes. of, of reggae. Tell, tell me about that. We hit on a, a style that was given the name Lover's Rock. It was at a time when... Um, Reggae was going very rootsy. It was going very biblical. It was going very Jarastafari. And there were some people turning to soul because they didn't identify with the, um, the deep indoctrination and uh, the religious movement about that. They just wanted to hear music to dance to. So, coupled with the fact that most of the reggae artists were male, it was a, a distinct lack of female reggae personnel. So there was like an opening for a style that was akin to the Supremes and Tamala Motown, um, a very kind of light reggae in its beat and in its song, more melodious, you know. So we started out by my group Matumbi doing a love song. And the song was called After Tonight. And because we were known as a group that played anything, we played lovers rock, we played reg hard rock reggae, we played roots, dub, all that. And so to try and corner all of these markets and this new market that we were calling lovers rock, right, where people would go, sound systems would go, we don't play English music. We don't play English music. We only play Jamaican music, pre-release. So. I formed an alliance with a sound system man called Sir Coxon. And he brought to my attention a girl who had already been singing on my sound system. I remember one night Dennis Brown was in a place called the Metro where my sound system played in Ladbroke Grove. And this young girl who was a friend of one of the sound system followers came up and I gave her the microphone and she sang on the B-side of Silhouette. Dennis Brown, Silhouette, oh, Silhouette. And Dee Brown was in, he went, came and said, hey, I like her voice. And that young girl was a girl called Louisa Mark. She had then entered a competition somewhere in the Four Aces Club where Coxon Sound was the, um, the resident sound. And, you know, 
received acclaim because it was hard to sing in that place because the people were so hardcore that if they didn't like you or didn't like your voice, they would boo you off. You know, no, no, all right, give her a break. No, 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 boo, get off. It'd be like the 291 Club, you know. So to have made it to the end from start to finish without people booing was a winner. And so Lloyd wanted to record this young girl with a song that he'd um, been signing on his sound system. The first record, every time his sound system was set up, the first record he would play would be a song called Caught You in a Lie by a singer called Robert Parker. Now, a lot of people knew Robert Parker. He was relatively unknown. But that song was somehow, you know, kind of the song that Coxon's sound became known for and the only sound ever to have played that sound, that song on his sound system. And it was an R&B tune. You know, so you do that to test the speakers. So he wanted to make a reggae version of that song. So he called me, went into the studio with um, my drummer from Matumbi and um, the vocalist from Matumbi, because those were the, the two people that I was hanging out with heavily. And um, the drummer played drums, I played the bass, then I played the guitars and the keyboard. Then there was an instrument called the Moog synthesizer that not a lot of reggae people had heard. So I was charged with making an intro for this song that was not the intro of the R&B version, but I made an intro that sounded like a very popular reggae tune at the time, produced by Lee Scratch Berry, a song called Curly Locks, right? And um, it started doom, do ba do ba do ba deep deep, boo ba do, ba 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 do ba do ba. Right. So I took the bass line, and then the Robert Parker song, the intro of that went ba da 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 ba da, ba ba da 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 ba da. Right. And one day while. Robbie Shakespeare was in the studio, and I was saying, look, see this, this is called the Moog synthesizer. And I had the tape running, and over those chords of the, the, the Court You're the Lie, I found myself playing. Which was not what the tune was. And Lloyd Coxon said, did you record that? I went, yeah, he goes, that, that's it, that's the intro. And that became, the intro of the song and a really kind of um, well-known intro because reggae in those days had to have an intro that people go, ah, this song's coming on now. I want to dance, you know. And um, so I, I did that and transformed the song. Then Lloydie Coxon, who was famous for saying, I don't play English records. I only play strictly Jamaican tunes. And he was involved with the production. So... He was obviously trying to promote it on his sound system. So there, I, I was celebrating a victory. A sound system was making a big thing of a song that was recorded in Soho, 
in a recording studio where three people, four people had made the record. You know, there was my drummer, there was me, and then there was Louisa, um, you know, and we'd made this record. And that record became so popular on the sound systems that immediately we released the Matumbi song after tonight because, you know, we'd made them both at the same time. It then became a bit of a, an industry. You were kind of a, you set yourself up as an industry, didn't you? Yes. In South London. Tell us, tell me about the kind of heart, the, you know, where you brought a whole new generation in through these, you did kind of uh, open auditions or something? Tell That's us. right. Well, what happened then was that a man who was a promoter who used to do coach excursions, and he lived in Broccoli, his name's Dennis Harris. He called me in, said, I'm building a recording studio, yeah, and you're going to be the engineer. It's like, thank you. So he built this recording studio, and the machine, the multi-track machine, was built by a man called Steve Wady. And Steve Wady was the drummer of a group called Los Bravos, and who had just had a number one hit with a song called Black is Black. Black is black, I want my baby back. It's gray, it's gray, since she went away, whoa, whoa. And um, Steve had gone from being a drummer to being a, a technical engineer with a, a wizard with a soldering iron. And he made this multi-track machine. We hadn't gone out and spent millions and buying one from Ampex or anywhere like that. He made this machine. So we had it at our disposal. And it was supposed to be eight tracks, but only seven of them worked. But um, there, in that studio, I met a man by the name of John Kapai. Simply because Dennis had said to me, he said, one night after a few brandies, he said, look, you're a great bass player, but your guitar playing sucks. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm a great guitar player. He's going, I'm going to bring a guitar player in here who's going to wipe the floor with you. I was like, yeah, bring him then. You know, really full of myself. And when the guy came, set his guitar up and started playing, I realized I was never going to be that good on the guitar. So I decided to pursue a life as a bassist. And uh, that man, I said to him, uh, what about being in a band with me? You play the guitar and I'll play the bass. And, and that was in 1975, and we're working together. That man's a man called John Kopai. Now, he was the man who single-handedly, well, almost single-handedly, except for um, a drummer, Leroy Green, had written this song, I'm in love with the dreadlocks. And he tells me it had been a kind of answer to Curly Locks, the same song that I'd made, taken a piece of the intro to do Caught You in a Lie. And he'd written an answer to it saying, I'm in love with the dreadlocks and I've never felt this way before. And when that song was about to be released, we had a meeting to discuss what the label was going to be called. And um, Dennis had eight or nine labels, but he was very fond of making a new label for a new venture. And he had, um, during the course of some auditions at the, at the studio on a Sunday afternoon, 
he'd selected three girls who were going to be like the new reggae supremes and given them the name Brown Sugar. One of those girls uh, is from Barbados, um, Pauline Catlin. She was going to be the lead singer. And the other two, Karen Wheeler and Coffee, were going to be the backup because they did backup very well and Pauline did lead very well. So they sang that tune of John's, I'm in love with the dreadlocks. Then in the meeting one afternoon, it was decided that the label to represent this kind of music should be called Lover's Rock. And uh, Dennis took his pen out, drew a heart, put an, an arrow that like Cupid, and went, that's the label. And that, was, that became the label. And the first song on the Lover's Rock label was John's song, I'm in love with the dreadlocks. The two coupled together made people say, oh, it's Lover's Rock, you know, and um, we took that you know, as being, that's the name of the genre.
you mentioned him a couple of times actually in this is is Eric Clapton. Mm. Were you was it in your on your radar when Eric Clapton sort of ranted and raved of Enoch Powell and Yes. In fact, Matumbi were playing that same night in Birmingham. And I have information that he'd driven past the queues to go into the Matumbi show, and his show was not that well attended. And he'd made that remark. And, um, well, he's a good guitar player. His politics need a lot to be desired. Uh, he's written some good songs. I mean, Sunshine of Your Love is positively a great song. And um, Strange Brew was a, a particular favourite of mine of Eric Clapton's. Um, I haven't held it against him. I, 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 I haven't forgotten it, but I've forgiven. Another thing that strange musical collaboration is that you, you got involved with the punks. Tell yes. me about your punk period or, or your involvement with the Slits and other... Uh, well, suddenly there was this new era coming along called punk. And one of the biggest punks was a fellow called Dennis Morris. And he was also the art director of Island Records and a close friend of uh, John Lydon. In fact, his personal photographer and a close friend of Bob Marley. In fact, his personal photographer, he's got, you know, if, if you ever see a Dennis Morris um, exhibition yeah. of photos he's taken of all famous people, your hair was standing in. And so he called me up one day and said uh, that Chris had wanted to know if I was interested in producing this punk band that he just signed. And it was all girls. And because I'd been working with girls in reggae, he thought I could work with girls in punk. You know, being the brother to six sisters, I think I understand uh, the female side of things very <laughs> well. And um, so he said, look, what do you reckon about this group? I'm going to make them the, the most you know, famous female punk band. They've got to be the first. They've got, you know, the, the album's got to be in the cutting edge. And I said, yeah, I'll have a go at that. Because it, I'd just been working with a group called The Pop Group. And um, we just turned out this crazy punk album called Why. And so by then people were like, Dennis Wavell's producing punk. Because I'd also been working with Steel Pulse just before that. And so people just couldn't figure out where, my, where I was coming from, you know. What, what, what turns around and go, well, music, noise, you know. If there's something good in there, you can, you know, develop it. And so it was that I was placed in a residential studio with these three young girls to kind of shape their music into something that they themselves could play later, not hanging your hat too high that you can't reach it, and enhance their playing ability. So I listened to the songs, made a few changes where they let me, and we started to record. And at the end of 10 weeks, we had the drums and the, and the bass and the guitar, and we started to do the vocals. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was, meticulous about everything, including uh, some of their lyrics, where there was um, 
a lyric that I thought was particularly racial. And I made them change that. Um, there's a song called Shoplifting. And in Shoplifting, the lyric, you might think quite harmlessly, said, um, do a runner, do a runner. They're talking about stealing from a shop, right? And then they go, um, Mr. Packy won't miss much and I'll have dinner tonight. And I went, hold it there, hold it there now. Mr. Packy, I object to that. We're not having that in the production that I'm doing. And he's like, why? It's all right, it's not. Again, that's a racist remark. You'll never live it down. So I said to them, okay, what about Babylonian won't miss much? And I went, yeah, well, <laughs> and many years later, they thanked me for preventing them from using that awful term. You know, so... They were much younger than you. Oh, yeah, I mean, Ari, the singer, was 15 years old. I was 23, you know. Uh, they were very young. In fact, um, I had the task of being not only their producer, but their guardian, and telling them what they couldn't have or what they couldn't, and what time they should go to bed. And they were quite rebellious. I go, all right, let's sit now, girls. Off you go to bed. But it's only 8 o'clock. Yeah, you've got to wake up early tomorrow. We're going to, we're going to be in the studio at 9 tomorrow morning. Yeah, but we can stay up till 12. No, you'll be tired. <laughs> and that's because I wanted to, while they were out of the studio, kind of fiddle around with a few things. But they wouldn't let me. Ari would not go to bed. He'd go, you're not working on my album. I'm not, and I'm not going to be there. I want to hear what you're doing in case I don't like it. Fair enough. Fair enough. In fact, I remember one time um, we were trying to put a piece of acoustic guitar on. And uh, after about an hour or so, I just, you know, my patience wore a bit thin. And I took the acoustic guitar from Viv and I rolled the tape and I played something. <clears throat> Very flashy. And she started crying. I was like, what are you crying for? No one's ever going to believe that I played that. So I thought, yeah, you're right. Rub it off. Rub it off. <laughs> can't have good music. And I think that. when I did that, they believed in me a little bit more. It wasn't, the album wasn't about me. It was about them and it was about me trying to help them. But they did one track when I said, mm, need a bit of organ on that. And they go, who's going to play the organ? Went, me. <laughs> All right then. So um, when we did a track called Newtown, I'm uh, playing some organ, just kind of just sneaking it in as a sound effect, you know. And uh, then I thought, we need some percussion. Go, Who's going to play that? I said, me. And uh, the, the lyric of the song went, New town where everyone goes around sniffing television or taking footballina. It's like television and football are the new drugs, right? And so... I got a spoon, an ashtray, and a box of matches. And I shook the box of matches, right, and went bing with the spoon uh, on the ashtray. The ashtray was to, to simulate um, fag smoking, and the spoon was to simulate the taking of harder substances. And the matches, of course, <laughs> were there to facilitate the pair of them. And occasionally, I'd take a match out of the box and go, and go, right? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And now, when we listen back to it again, 
Yeah, it's quite good. You know, just make, creating a, a kind of percussion track. Percussion. Yeah. Let's move back a little bit in terms of general. I, you've you've been sort of in the in the industry, been a one man industry for a long time. How do you think reggae has been treated in this country by the industry? By the has it been well treated? Reggae has been kept down for whatever reason. I don't know. Probably because they don't want too many reggae stars around, but. It's obvious that that is the beat that people are infatuated with. You know, you put, you go anywhere and you put a reggae tune, people hit the dance floor. You know, it's the beat that's infectious, right? I think they're afraid of loving it. So let's try and get to that. We, we're calling it bass culture for this project, obviously based on, you know, right. the tune, the, the poem that you brought to life as a piece of music as well. What well, is it about that beat? What is, what is bass culture? What does it mean to you? Though? Well, a bass is something that you can stand on firmly. A good bass, a firm bass, right? So the bass instrument in reggae has become the bass of that culture to be louder. I mean, until reggae came along, bass players was sat in the back of the band, and the drummer as well, in the back of the band. It was all about the guitarist and the saxophonist and the trumpeter and the trombonist and, and the singer and all that. Then reggae came along and went, it's all about the bass. It's all about the drums. Hear how loud they are. Then rock went, yeah, we're having some of that. Let's have our drums as loud as that. Because even rock, back in the day, it was paper thin. It was just a noise of a thousand kilohertz, nothing above and nothing below, right? And um, just a noise, like a mosquito in the room, you know? But then reggae came along and the windows started to shake and the floorboards started to jump up and down as well. And um, all the fixtures, like your pictures on your wall, fell off, you know? And it made people feel really good. 